Peace be with you. We're going to be in Matthew uh, 26 today, if you want to turn your Bible on or open it up. We're, we'll get there in a little while. We're actually going to do it a little different today. Uh, today we're going to be looking at a meal, at the meal uh, that tells you who you are. It reminds you of who you are. So we're going to be, this morning's sermon is just going to be around communion. And uh, it's going to be super helpful. And to help us, what we're going to do is, is I'm going to, I felt daring, so... To get us started, I want to invite the little kids up. So kindergarten and up, kindergarten and up, why don't you come up here? Don't worry, I will bribe you. Come on, you can sit right here. Kindergarten and up. Yeah, that's right. I like that spirit. You can have a seat. Have a seat. Whoever's comfortable. If you're not comfortable, that's okay too. For everybody that answers a question of mine, you get, you get juice boxes. And there's no such thing as a perfect answer. Come on, yeah, have a seat, bud. And if you're not, if you're under kindergarten, like, don't worry, Miss, Miss Kristen will be walking around and she'll hook you up. So, uh, hi guys. My name is Matt. Thanks for coming up. Good, good. I am, I am. Thanks for coming. I have a microphone. It's so cool. I know, that's the point. Uh, okay, ready? Ready? First question. You ready? You're going to help me, and you're going to help your, your, your mommies and your daddies. Okay? Cool? All right, first question. Ready? Do you have pictures at your house, like a family? Do you have those on your walls at all? Yes. If not, you probably, your moms and dads have a ton of pictures, I'm sure, on their phones. Yeah, of you. Why do you think... Ready? Why do you think you have pictures of family around the house? Uh, to yeah, what else? Yes. Go ahead, just, just shout it out. Um, because they love us? Yes, they and love you. you. Look at them. Yeah, you can look at them. Remember, remember good times with your family? That's right, right, right. And to remember when you were on vacation? <laughs> <laughs> I eat one of those, yes. Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay. All right, so absolutely, I think, right, my idea is that I think we put pictures up on our walls or we have them on our phones. I think we do it to remember, yeah? I think it, it helps, uh, pictures of family help us remember who, who we belong to. Like, who do you belong to? That's right. And so, you know, they, they help you remember who you love. They, they help you remember what you've been through, right, where you've been. We actually belong to God. Oh, that's right. You're a pastor's kid, aren't you? Uh, yeah, that's right. Totally. Okay, now, ready? Next question. Who knows what this is? Go ahead. Just shout it. Okay, that's right. So we call this communion or the Lord's Supper. And you, maybe you see mommies and daddies. They drink it. That's, yep. And eat it. And eat it, yep. It tastes gross. Oh. I won't tell. So, so you, you've probably seen, you know, the adults taking these. So, what are they doing when they're taking this? Do you do you know? They Does anyone know? Praising God. Praising God. Absolutely. And drinking his blood. Yeah, drinking his blood. And, yeah. Um, it's so they can remember God and how He has saved us. That's right. So, absolutely. So, the same way, in the same way that pictures of your families, right, on your walls. 
remind, I, remind us, like where we've been, who we belong to, who loves us, all of those things. This, for Christians, like I'm a Christian, right? The same way this reminds Christians who they are, who they belong to, who loves them, who they truly love. Make sense? God loves you. Thank you. God loves you. All right. Thank you so much for participating. Ruth, can I have that right there? Yep. Do you guys want an honest uh, fruit punch here? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Can you all give the kids clap? Yeah. Now, you might want to ask mom and dad. I don't know. Don't get me in trouble. Who's left here? There you go, buddy. Thanks, guys. You can head back. You can head back. And I already knew this was going to happen. Spoiler alert. Oh. All right. Well. Good job. Hey, if you didn't get one in the room, thank you. If you didn't get one, if you're, you know, if you're an adult and you want a juice box, well, we have another issue going on, so <laughs> I'm joking. Okay, hey, uh, so you get it? You get it? Yeah, we get it now, right? I don't even technically have to preach. That was it. Uh, communion is what we're talking about. That's basically the core point today, what you just heard or hopefully you heard. Uh, but let me show us how we get there. Um, let me show you how we get to that kind of idea of that communion is remi a reminder to us as Christians, that it points us, it's a meal, like I said, it's a meal, a little meal. It's a meal that reminds us of who we are. Okay, so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Matthew 26. We're going to look at 14 through 29. And, 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 and instead of like normally I'll read the whole block together and then we'll unpack it. What I'm going to do is just, we're just, I'm going to break it up in chunks for us and then I'll stop periodically and I'll teach on a little bit and then we'll keep going. All right. So just stay seated and you can follow along up top or on your phone or however it works for you. So, so we're starting picking up in verse 14. We just finished, you know, Jesus has just, just had this woman anoint him with oil and the disciples are, are messing up again. Um, by thinking about the mercy project that they should be doing and Jesus, they've interpreted this as just some crazy groupie that just wants to shower her love on Jesus. So that's just finished up. And so here we go. Immediately after that, we read this. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment, he sought an opportunity, or they sought an opportunity to betray him. Why Judas did this, we don't know. We can only speculate. Uh, the fact that Matthew puts it right on the back end of this doesn't just mean that it probably just happened then, but it also, maybe something was going on. Maybe that was the last straw for Judas. It's just, he is sick of the Messiah claims that Jesus is making, maybe. He's sick of the way that Jesus spends money that he's not more organized, you know, he's, he's just sick of it. 
He's watched a ton of money go dripping down Jesus' face, and it could have helped his, his fellow poor Israelites. He's sick of it. He can't stand it anymore, and he's just going to sell Jesus out. We don't know. We don't know why, but that's what happened. And then it says this. Uh, now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, quote, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And this is the second time Jesus has done this. He's, he's got, yes, he has enemies apparently within his own friend group, but he also has friends amongst his enemies. So who this person is, we don't know, but he has somehow set this up in advance probably. He says, well, you just go into the city to a certain man and say to him, and this is like code language. It's so fun and cool. Um, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Okay, so what we're, just first off, we just need to understand, in case you don't know, like we just need to get some kind of an understanding of the Passover and the Passover meal and its importance. So let's just understand the origin of that, okay? And, 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 and Mr. Lou Allen was kind of helping us through that in the liturgy. But what's the biggest day within the Christian calendar, would you say? Easter, yeah, it's the pinnacle, right? It's pastors, trying, they get, you know, church staff, they get all stressed out, all leading up to Easter, because that's our big moment, rightfully so. Well, uh, within the Jewish calendar, what's the biggest, the pinnacle day? Passover, Passover meal, uh, that once a, a year celebration. Technically, here, it's, it's Passover or the uh, uh, Festival of Unleavened Bread, seven days long, technically, um, and it, it ends with this meal. Um, so... Within the story we're reading here, Jesus' final moments of his life, he's, he's about to be arrested and crucified. I mean, we're getting ready to hit that in the coming weeks. Uh, and Jesus has brilliantly, brilliantly timed his whole life, his whole ministry to this moment, to this, this, this festival, this, this big, big pinnacle uh, day and, and, and week in, in, in Jewish culture, to the week of the Passover. Why does he do that, Right? That's the question you got to ask. We'll get to that in a moment if you don't already have that figured out. But here's the thing. So it's probably Thursday afternoon within the Passion Week. Thursday afternoon in this scene. The day of the Passover meal was the following day. And so the disciples are, are doing necessary preparations. And you got to understand, like for us, like Western, like modern, like for us, our day ends at this weird magical hour that we created called midnight. And the new day starts. Not for them. It's sundown. It's a new day at sundown. It's the following day at sundown. So here's what's happening. And, and so the Passover meal, uh, they're, they're preparing it. Now, see, here's the thing. Um, the, 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 the Passover meal is this, is this identity-shaping ritual for the Jew. It grounds them in who they are. It reminds them of who they are. It was a memorial. It was a meal that stretched all the way back, and we looked at this a little bit ago uh, uh, through our liturgy. It, it stretches all the way back to when the Israelites were captive in Egypt. Horrible things were happening to them. We touched on this earlier in the year when we were doing our Sabbath series. We kind of walked through all the things that the ancient Hebrews had been through in their, their slavery within Egypt. Um, horrible things. And they, they were feared. And you can read about this starting in Exodus chapter 1. If you've never read it before, it's a fascinating story, a fascinating piece of history. But essentially, the people in power, led by Pharaoh, feared this growing minority group. And that's what they were, a minority group. And so they feared them as they continued to grow 
what might happen. Could there be a coup? Could there be something? And so they just began to oppress them more and more and more, putting harsh slavery upon them. It gets so bad, uh, uh, they even begin a genocide on them. And so they were beat down, distraught. God heard their cry. He raised up this leader, you know, Moses, that we all know, the famous Moses. He sends plagues to change the stubborn heart of Pharaoh so that he would release these people out of their slavery. And eventually, the last move was this angel of death that sweeps through the land, killing all of the, the firstborn uh, in the land. And you can read all about this in Exodus 12. We read some of that this morning. And it just seems barbaric, doesn't it? Just, let's just admit that. Like, you go to that story, and you're like, this is weird. There's all these, like, insects and stuff coming through the land. And then we got, we got little boys getting, like, losing their lives. Like, what? Like, that's your Bible. It's crazy. You got little lambs being slaughtered. What'd they do? I mean, it's just kind of, the whole thing seems crazy. But stop for a moment and think. I mean, just, you got to be honest about the, the, the whole strangeness and the darkness of it all. Uh, but also realize everything that's going on in the, this particular time in, the world, in world history. I mean, Pharaoh wasn't just a terrible slave driver. He, he performed Nazi-like genocide. He feared these people so much. He disliked the, he, he, he so devalued, dehumanized these people. He declares that, look, uh, every firstborn son, if it's a son, as he comes out of the womb, kill him. And he tells that to the Hebrew midwives, and he's like, here, when you're helping these mothers give birth, just end it there if it's a son. And they don't want to. They're fearful. And they're like, I don't think that's what God wants us to do. So they start sneaking these boys through somehow. He finds out about that. So he decrees it in the whole land. The whole land tells all the Egyptians, you see a Hebrew with a little son, you throw him into the Nile and drown him. It's crazy. Can you imagine? Imagine walking around town and someone who's not like you, not from your background, not your culture, and they see you with a little boy, and they can take him and do whatever they want with him. Now, my, my question is, what is God supposed to do? It's crazy. And we're so modern, and we don't do things like this anymore, right? What is God supposed to do? He will not let evil go undealt with. And so trying and trying and trying to convince doesn't work. He goes to this level. It's like, how can you imagine the pain, the evil? And of course, you see this. This is sobering justice is what it is. It's a sobering moment of judgment. But here's the thing. God made a way out. It's not like Pharaoh made a way out. God makes a way out. He gives us an option. He gave them an option. He says, look, you can take judgment upon yourself and your family this night. You can, you, can, you can do your best and see what happens for you. Or, or you can take a spotless lamb. I mean, it's crazy, but it's your son or it's the lamb. Which one do you want? So, this is what's taking place. This little lamb, without blemish, slaughter it. Feed your family with it that night. Whatever you don't eat, you burn, you consume. And you get ready. And you take this blood and you, yeah, you paint it on the, the sides of the door and the lintel at the top. You, 
and you lay it there, and it'll be a sign. It'll be a sign that you sacrifice something innocent, something innocent as a substitute, and your family would be passed over, no judgment for you, because the, the judgment fell on that lamb. That's the idea. So after this night, uh, for all those that escaped that did this, they are now to once a year, moving forward, they're commanded. Now, you're to remember this moment. You're supposed to have this meal. You're supposed to have this meal uh, so you can remember the sacrifice and the rescue. And the meal, the Passover meal, basically included the, the, the essential uh, parts to the meal. Uh, we're not going to go through it all, but it's basically wine, unleavened bread, and that was to, to, to remind them that they were, they were the original Hebrews were to eat this meal in such a hurry. Back, backpacks on, sandals on, staffs like ready to go. So there wasn't time to let the yeast do, or the leaven do what it's supposed to do in bread. So that's the idea. So, so it's wine, unleavened bread, bitter herb, like horseradish. They would take that, and I don't know if you like that, but if you put that in your mouth, you will wince maybe tear up, and the idea is to be reminded of the bitter, bitter slavery that they were in. So unleavened bread, wine, bitter herb, and then lamb meat, of course. This is what would do. Every year, the Jews would practice this meal. They would sit down, um, sit down on the floor. The, the, the father of the family would bless the meal, say a blessing over it. Maybe the eldest son in the group, of, if there was one there, would then ask the father, why are we doing this? And they would recount the whole Exodus story. This was the, the Passover meal that they would do every year. And so the point was for it to be this identity-shaping ritual. It grounds them back. Here's who you are. You are first and foremost a people that were in slavery. You were destitute, and God rescued you. He rescued you out. Rescued from slavery, oppression, and evil. They were God's people. They are kept by his love. He is absolutely committed to them to the end. And they were so once you remember that. Well, so here in this scene that we're reading, Jesus and his disciples are about to take part in that same thing. So they're going to sit down and have that meal, right? They're Jewish. They're not getting away from those rituals. They're, they're doing these rituals. That's what's taking place. And so uh, as the dinner takes off, Jesus starts dropping bombs, just using language that is not part of the tradition. And it's totally got them, I'm sure it's thrown them off. Um, and so he starts bringing in this, just this strange interpretation to the whole meal uh, that was well known. And so we're picking up verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. So they're literally sitting on the floor. And, um, verse 20, and as they were eating, he said, quote, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. I'm sure that set a weird mood for the meal. And it says they were, of course, naturally, they're very sorrowful, and they begin to say to one another, is it, is, it, is it I, Lord? And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Jesus kind of just leaves it ambiguous, which probably makes it even weirder. The Son of Man goes, that is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. It's harsh and hard to hear, but Jesus is essentially saying, sin is so, so evil, it makes life worthless. If you understand it that way. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, 
This is so brilliant of Jesus. You have said so. Notice the disciples look to Jesus and they say, is it I, Lord? What's Judas say? Rabbi? Hey, teacher. Is it me? And Jesus, strangely enough, doesn't out him. So he doesn't lie. Right? He doesn't say, no, it's not you. You jerk. Right? No, he doesn't lie. But what he says is, is these are your words. Hmm. Verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, so he's doing the traditional blessing, and broke it, he gave it to the disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. That's weird. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day, that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So you've got to understand the brilliance of what Jesus has done with this, this, this meal that stretches back centuries. Like I said, it's, it's likely uh, Thursday evening past sundown, so technically it's the day of Passover remembrance, right at the very beginning, um, and hence they're, why they're already taking, place, they're, uh, taking part in it. And I say that because, uh, like I said, they're taking this Passover extremely early. But I mean, what I mean by early, in the wee hours of the night is what's taking place. Now, why? Here's why. Because Jesus is running out of time. Literally within hours, Jesus will be arrested. He will be taken. And he will, and within hours, within, within 24 hours, he will be hanging on a tree, naked, dying. And Jesus knows that. His time is up. And he wants to get to this. He's timed everything for this. The disciples don't know it, but this is what's going to take place for Jesus. And not only will it be physically and emotionally and spiritually broken, but he'll be abandoned by his closest friends. And if you believe the scriptures, according to the scriptures, he'll even be abandoned by his father. You can imagine, right, for Jesus in this moment, timing this meal, every single moment, every single word for Jesus is strategic, and it's freighted with meaning. And how does he choose to explain himself? Essentially, think, I'm trying to actually ask and then answer something very simple. Jesus has been repeatedly telling his closest friends, I'm going to die, I'm going to be taken, and I'm going to die. I'm going to be taken, and I'm going to die. Where does Jesus explain why? Go flip. Go flip through your, your New Testament. Look through the Gospels. Where does Jesus go into this long discourse explaining his death to them? Here's why it's all got to happen this way, yada, yada, and walking them step by step. I mean, and Jesus is mine. Jesus, right? See, he, for him, he believes, I'm on a rescue mission. I'm rescuing the entire world. They don't fully understand it. Because he, even though he repeatedly tells them this, they don't get it, right? They're just super slow on the uptake. So where does Jesus explain himself to these guys? Well, apart from maybe a couple places, back in chapter 20 of Matthew and in, in Mark 10, it's, it's recorded there as well. Jesus says that just this, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the only thing we really have. I mean, Jesus is just super cryptic. 
So apart from that, no big lecture, no big sermon ever given to explain in detail all that must be done and why. So my point is this, it's fascinating and profound, but Jesus uses a dinner meal to explain himself. He waits his whole life for a dinner meal, a one little meal, and he uses that as his explanation for everything. He purposely has timed his death around this little ritual meal, and he's tapped into the ritual meal and essentially reinterpreted it, but I would say more than that, what he's done is he's expanded it and deepened it for everyone. So the same way judgment had to come down on Egypt for its evil, judgment has to come down on the earth. God cannot let evil go undealt with. The evil is everywhere. It's not just in the Egyptians, right? Every person has participated in the evil. We've all got a little bit of Judas in us. But in the same way God provided a substitute for the ancient Hebrews, God is providing a substitute now for the whole world. But this time it won't be this cute little woolly creature. It'll be something far more precious. It'll be God's only son, Jesus, right? And so Jesus is using this ancient memorial to explain himself. And so what he's doing is he's saying, you either understand me, you either receive me as your broken, bloody substitute, or you don't understand me and you don't receive me at all. This is who I am. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's deeper than someone, it's deeper than just someone who has a good work ethic, a good ethics in general, good morality in general, good principles. At its core, and this is what I wanted to get the little kids to be thinking about, at the core to be a Christian is to be someone who was in the wrong, who has been in the wrong, and someone else has rescued you. You've been in a bad spot, and you couldn't get yourself out of it, and you've been rescued, and it is your core identity of who you are as a person. It marks you as a person. It has to permeate your entire life. You are someone who has been rescued through the sacrificial love of innocent blood. Innocent blood. Can you imagine being the dad or the mom or whoever that was slaughtering the lamb? This little spotless lamb didn't do anything to you. Seriously. Think that was fun? The whole point is for you to feel it. And I wonder if we feel the weight of the cross and what it means. It's both tragic and beautiful at the same time because it's where, it's where justice and mercy meet. Justice because there's got to be, there's got to be, a, 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 the debt's got to be paid but merciful because it's like, well, it's, it's not going to fall down on you and me. And so Jesus is doing more than just explaining himself and explaining who you are as a Christian. He's gifting you with this real simple, and it is a simple, simple way of remembering who we are. Think about it. Jesus could have said, once a year, I want you to go up the biggest mountain in your state. Bow down 10 times so you can remember what I've done. Instead, he just says, take bread and some wine. This is how you'll remember. So in the same way this Passover meal was a way of grounding the Hebrew in their true identity, this little meal of bread and wine that we take every week 
is this this way for these disciples now to ground themselves back into their true identity. It's the same thing. He's just reworking it. But we, of course, don't call it Passover anymore. We call it communion. We call it the Lord's Supper. And this is what Christians all over the earth are doing when they take the cup and the bread. They're being grounded in the memory of who they really truly are and how they got there. And so every time you take the bread and wine, you're remembering more than anything else at the core, I'm a person who was rescued by Jesus and by his spirit, he is with me in some way that I can't fully grasp or understand, but he is with me every time I take part in it. And that's why we at the Oaks take it weekly, in case you're ever wondering, like, why do they do it all the time? Because every week we want to remember. Because every week we forget It's not to water it down or to make it casual. It's to trigger remembrance. So here's the thing. Just three things I want to give you. Three things in how you approach it. Because I know if you're like me, there have been times you have taken part in communion either here or at another church, and you just wonder, am I doing this right? Or am I the only one? So here, just three things. Three little things. One, As we approach communion every week, we take it in humility. We absolutely take it in humility. There is a lot of, look, I'll be honest with you, there is a lot of overlap with all the major world religions. I'm going to be straight with you. If you haven't taken a religion class, let me just tell you, there is a lot of overlap. But there are a few key critical parts of Christianity that make it deviate big time. Now here's the thing. For instance, Buddha dies at 80 in peace. He was a success at that time of his death, and he was surrounded by his devotees. Confucius was forced out of his hometown, Khufu, but he makes it back eventually. And he dies in his hometown at age 72, surrounded by his loved ones. Muhammad dies in his 60s. He's a political ruler, and he died in the arms of his wife. Jesus, Jesus makes it to probably 33. His ministry lasted roughly three years only. And at his end, he is alienated and abandoned by almost everybody, apart from a few women. He is executed as a pointless, pointless rebel naked, hanging up, humiliated for everyone to look at and laugh at. So Jesus chooses an option, chooses an ending. He chooses a life that is absolutely humiliating comparatively to every other religion. Jesus let the world shame him and hurt him. It's his wounds that heal us, though. I mean, it's fascinating. It's the only real explanation that Christianity is real, friends, because when you look at all the other religions, because they end in such a success, you can say, well, that makes sense. I get why people gravitate towards it. Why, why in the heck do people gravitate towards Christianity when it has an absolutely pathetic ending. Why would it have ever taken off? Here's why. And this is just a guess because I'm not that much of a scholar. Here's why I think. I think there is just something transformative 
about your hero being absolutely humiliated because he loves you. He loves you so much that he's going to humiliate himself for you. That's what birthed Christianity. That's the movement. Therefore, I'm not saying we approach communion sulking and trying to conjure up sadness. No, 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 no. It's just that if we understand our identity as a people that needed rescued because of all the hurting that we do, uh, then we can't have an air of superiority about us. So when you come to your little time of communion each week, you should confront and you, can, you should shed any prideful arrogance that's accumulated over the week. It's time for you to confront that. Who are you to look down on that brother? Who are you to look down on that sister? Second, we take it in honesty. If you notice at the beginning of the meal, Jesus looked at his disciples and said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and they began to say to him one after the other, he said, I Lord. Why does Jesus do that? Dude, Jesus, bro, you know it's Judas. Why do you leave it open? Why do you send all these guys and their wheels are spinning and they get all insecure and they're like, is it me, is it me? Well, technically they do. They all have their own little part of betrayal and, you know, to some degree or another. You know why I think this is? And I think that this is what Paul picks up on in 1 Corinthians 11. I think Jesus is saying because you never come to the table without first examining yourself. Be honest. You are held and you are loved and all of that, absolutely. But there is still always reason to stop and go, wait, have I been a Judas this week? Have I been... Have I been totally loving at all times? It's always important for us to stop and take a look in. Could I be that guy? Could I be the bad guy? And truly, rescue people don't ignore and sweep under the rug the very things that put Jesus on the cross in the first place. They bring it back out. And when we see sin in ourselves, we bring it up, we confess it, and we say, I, I, I don't want this anymore. I don't want this anymore. And we ask God to take it, and he does. Third, we take it with hope. We come to the table each week with, like, just full of honesty, and if we're not too terribly distracted, we very often are flooded with thoughts of unworthiness. I think that's for a lot of us, that's the case. We know who we are, but you know who you are, right? And we're, at the very least, we have this low-grade guilt about us when we drink down the juice. We just know how much we don't measure up, or we, we, we start to feel all the ways that we've been scared, or, or, or we're scared that we haven't been devoted enough, or sincere enough to God, whatever it is. But you know, in wrapping up his words here, Jesus doesn't focus on your commitment or your desires, he focuses on his. <laughs> he, he, he says, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus wants, for one thing, Jesus wants forgiveness to be palpable for you. That's so interesting. And I admit, I'm still leaving working that out over time as I go in my life. In other words, he doesn't just want words of forgiveness for you. He wants it felt. He wants it going down into your belly. Look, in the same way, like a little meal, in the same way food and water, for instance, nourishes your body, 
So does forgiveness, and you need to understand it that way. You can't live with guilt. You think you can, but it deteriorates your life, not just spiritually and emotionally, but physically. Heck, you'll get ulcers eventually. It's true. You can't live under the weight of how guilty you feel. People that try to manage and just live with their guilt, they end up bitter. They end up angry. They end up depressed. They end up vindictive. Everyone is a threat. They hate everybody. Jesus says, I, I, I really actually want forgiveness. Do you realize that? Jesus says, I, I want you to be forgiven. And, and, I, and I want it so bad, I want you to drink it down. I want it to nourish you. Like your whole life, be free, be lightened up. I don't want you to live under the weight anymore. And he wants his love palpable as well. Why would he say, I, I won't drink this wine again until I drink it with you in the new kingdom? What's he saying? Well, in the same way you sit down for dinner maybe with a spouse or friends, family, whatever it is, and you got someone missing. The meal's sitting, ready. It's steaming hot. Everything's ready to go. But there's one or two people, important people, that you love, not at the table. What do you do? Well, if you're rude, you dig in. Right? But if you're careful, what do you do? You wait. You wait until they sit down. Now, why are you doing it? Here's why you're doing it, whether you know it or not. Just not just because mom and dad did that when you were growing up. At the core, what are we doing? We're saying, I love you so much. I don't want to enjoy this without you being present. Do you realize that's what Jesus is doing right now? That's why we tend to not take, if we can avoid it, we don't take communion apart from each other around here. You ever, did you know that? That's why. It's diminished without your physical presence. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to wait I'm not going to drink because I'm going to wait to celebrate it with you in the flesh. So every time we do it, we remember. We remember not only that he's holding us and keeping us, but he's waiting for us. He's waiting for us. And he's preparing a party for us. I love you so much. I long for your presence so much. I won't enjoy celebration wine without you. So your end is not something to fear, but something to look forward to, friends. You are getting a newly renovated body and a newly renovated world. And Jesus will dine with you. So let's take time this morning. I don't even need to do a whole presentation because that was the whole sermon. You should know what to do now with this. You should know how to approach this. And if you're, you know, for anyone and where you're at in your own spiritual journey, if you're someone that's still not really feeling as if, I don't think I'm a Christian yet, like examine all of that and come have a conversation with this. This isn't about being sinless. This is about being truly humble, seeing Jesus as your substitute, being honest about who you are and what you've been through, right? And being filled up with joy and take it with joy. Friends, take it with joy. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you this morning. The fact that you decided to explain yourself through a little meal is beyond my wildest imagination. But so let us take it weekly. Let us take it today and remember. And let us be humbled by it. Let it make us an honest people, an honest community. And let us take it in great hope, knowing what awaits us, 
a new world, a new kingdom, a new humanity, all of it. And that, at the very least, gives us something stable to hold on to when things are strange or fearful. We love you, dear Lord, and we thank you. Bless the rest of our service. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.